Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. And uh, we'll have the slide up. Have you ever heard of Anthony Ashley Cooper? He was born in 1801 to an aristocratic family in London. He was raised in privilege. He went to Harrow School and Oxford University. He was known as Lord Ashley until his father's death in 1851. And then he took his title, Lord Shaftesbury. At the tender age of 25, he was elected Member of Parliament for Woodstock. From that moment on, he devoted his life to the service of his fellow men and women, boys and girls. He was involved in the reform of lunacy laws, factory reform, reform of laws related to mining, campaigning on behalf of what were called climbing boys, that's chimney sweeps, education reform, the founding and promotion of ragged schools for children from a poor background. He was president of the Bible Society. He died in 1885 after a long and fruitful life of serving Jesus. A funeral service was held in Westminster Abbey during the early morning and the streets were thronged with poor people, flower girls, boot blacks, 
crossing sweepers, factory hands, and similar workers who waited for hours to see Shaftesbury's coffin as it was passing by. Due to his constant advocacy and generosity for the better treatment of the poor, Shaftesbury became known as the poor man's earl. One biographer claimed that no one has in fact ever done more to lessen the extent of human misery or to add to the sum total of human happiness. Now, what made a wealthy aristocrat live like this? It was the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. Lord Shaftesbury understood it, and the gospel made him a generous man. Now, as you've heard at Grace Church at the moment, we're in a series of services built around vision. What's our vision? See Manchester filled with communities of light. What would, what would it take to get there? New churches being planted, new leaders being raised up, new partnerships. Has it started already? Yes. We believe that God is already doing great things in Manchester. But we also believe that the best is yet to come. Therefore, we are calling our church family to get on the bus. Are you in to this vision? If you are, then surely your wallet has followed your heart this morning. And surely your diary will follow close after. Because gospel work doesn't just need money, it needs our time and our talents. So there's another target that's equally important, which is the giving of our time and talents. And I mentioned a few weeks ago some examples of areas that we need help in running the church here. We need uh, people who will step up as leaders of small groups in the week, life group leaders, people to serve in the finance team, people to serve in children and youth work, people to serve in worship support on the sound desk. And I'm really encouraged, actually, since mentioning those things two or three weeks ago, several people have actually stepped forward and volunteered, which is just fantastic. But there is still room for more. Now, what will motivate us to give our precious pennies? And what will motivate us to give our even more precious time? The answer is... A generous heart, a generous heart. So what we're thinking about today, this is our fourth and final week on the vision series, is how the gospel makes us generous. How the gospel makes us generous with our money, our time, our talents. And we want to spend our time in this really interesting episode from the life of Abraham. Now, Abraham is a terrifically significant person in world history. Three major religions claim Abraham as the father of their faith. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. So that accounts for more than half of the world's population. So it's worth knowing a bit about Abraham. However, our interest today is not just historical. The New Testament says that God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. God announced the gospel to him in advance. That's a fascinating phrase. It means that even though Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Jesus, in some way God revealed the good news to him. And Abraham believed God. He walked by faith and not by sight. And so he's known as the father of faith. And so we're looking today at Abraham's life for what we can learn about the gospel and how it makes you generous. And in chapter 13, easily passed over, we see a staggering act of generosity the main thing we learn from chapter 13 is that the gospel makes you generous that's what Lord Shaftesbury learned that's what Abraham learned 3,800 years before him 
The gospel makes you generous. Now, I suppose the first question is, what does generosity look like? And the answer to that is here, first point, that uh, it, it is beautiful. The beauty of a generous life. Now, back in Genesis 11 and 12, this guy was introduced. He sort of comes out of nowhere. At that point, his name was Abram. He got the ha later. So at this point, he's just Abram. What was he like? Well, his social media profile, if Abram had had a Facebook page or a LinkedIn profile, would have looked something like this. Age, 75. So normally considered retirement age. Uh, family, well, he's married, but he had no children. His wife actually was infertile. So in the ancient world, he had no name to carry on into the future. No future, no children, no people to inherit from him. He was also a, an idol worshipper, probably a moon worshipper. Joshua 24 says that he worshipped uh, false gods. So he has nothing to commend him spiritually in, in, the, in the Bible's view. And he, by the way, by, by chapter 12, he'd already failed God. Acts chapter 7 says that Abraham got the call from God to, to get up and go and leave everything while he was still in Mesopotamia, but he didn't follow through on it. He stopped in a place called Haran and just kind of basically parked there. So God had to come after him again. Abraham had already failed. So by his own culture's standards and by the Bible's standards, this man is rather unimpressive. He's an obscure person, a no-name Washed up moon worshipper, a man whose natural life is nearly over, who has no children to carry his name forward. And yet, in Genesis 12, he gets a promise from God that changed history. He trusts the promise, he listened to God and he obeyed him. Get up and go, is what the Hebrew people called that chapter. Get up and go. And God promised that every family on earth... Every family on earth would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. He didn't even have any children. Every family on earth would be blessed through your descendants. And one of those descendants, by the way, was Jesus Christ. God keeps his promises. Even though Abraham himself died, still living in hope and still living in a tent. God called him. There was nothing in Abraham himself that merited the call. Nothing at all. He didn't even obey God fully the first time. It was simply the grace of God who chooses people in spite of themselves, sets his love on them and pursues them and leads them like stubborn mules into his future. So in short, there's nothing special about Abraham that made God want to choose him, but God is not like us. He doesn't look on the outward appearance. He doesn't look for the people who are the most talented or good-looking, or influential. God is not controlled or limited by human potential or lack of it. He takes losers, and he turns them around and makes them bless the whole world. And God made the most extraordinary promises to this man, Abraham. And as a result of those promises, Abraham was able to become generous. So we pick up the story here in chapter 13, with Abraham and co. returning from Egypt. Now look at what it says here in uh, Chapter 13, verse 1 to 4. If I can read this. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. That's his nephew. Abram had become very wealthy 
in livestock and in silver and gold. So when we talk about Abraham living in tents, it's not that 90 quid tent from Decathlon, okay? He's a, he's a, he's a merchant prince. He's done well in Egypt, and his nephew Lot, who came along for the ride, he's done pretty well too. Verse 5 says that Lot, who was moving about with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. So they're, they're doing well, but no sooner have they got back to the promised land than problems kick off. And verse 6 and 7 share that but the land could not support them while they stayed together. Their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together and quarreling arose between the herdsmen. So these guys are, are nomadic uh, herdsmen and, and farmers who, who move where the good pasture is. And they've gotten enough flocks and herds that now there's not enough space for them. So fighting is breaking out between their, their different families, their different workers. And so here's a problem. And what does Abraham do? Well, at this point, he demonstrates that God has given him a generous heart. A generous heart. Just look what he says in verse 8. He steps in. So Abraham said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine for we are close relatives. See, he, he wants peace. He decides he will step in. And let's just see what the, the offer is. Verse 9, is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. In other words, Lot gets the choice of the land. Now, Abraham in the culture is the senior man. He's the uncle, and he was called by God. Three reasons why he should normally have taken what he wanted. Abraham is riding the motorbike. Lot's just in the sidecar. Lot came along for the ride. He's done quite well out of it. Culturally, Lot has no rights at all in this situation. He should be taking orders from Abraham. But that is not what happens. Abraham waives his rights and gives Lot the first choice of the pasture land. In English idiom, we would say first dibs. Why does he do it? Verse 8, for the sake of peace. Abraham knows where all this is heading. He wants to stop it. You know what money can do to families. The more money there is, the more problems emerge. Abraham steps in. He acts as a peacemaker. Although he could stand on his rights, he waves them for the sake of peace. And he says, Lot, you go ahead. You choose. You choose which land you want. And that will be yours. So a generous heart leads to a generous wallet. Scholars tell us that from the vantage point of Bethel, where they were standing, you have a magnificent view over the Jordan Valley. Maybe some of you have been there. And it's very clear to everyone standing there where the good land is. On the Canaan side, there's limited pasture. It's prone to drought and famine, as we know from chapter 12. And the Canaanites are there. So you've got settled inhabitants. You've got people who've lived there for a long time. They, 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 they've got property rights. It's a tricky place to operate. But, whoa, down there's the Jordan Valley. Oh, boy. And the narrator, who's normally quite self-controlled, just kind of starts, starts um, emoting about it. Verse 10. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. I mean, Lot sees this and his pound signs come up in his eyes. Ka-ching! And he's thinking, all right, okay. Now, 
Remember, Abraham is still wealthy. He's still got significant personal resources with his flocks and herds and precious metals. He's not sold the farm and given the proceeds to charity. But remember too, what does he need for his future with all those flocks and herds? He needs the good land. And he's just signed away all the best pasture land. Abraham may be rich, but he's also spectacularly generous. He's given away his future, because without good land, he will diminish. It took a big heart to do this, and it is a beautiful heart. You know, there's nothing more ugly than someone standing on their own rights, insisting that they get their own way. And there's nothing more beautiful than a person graciously stepping aside and giving someone else the advantage. You go first, Lot, at great personal cost. Now, do you want to live like that? What kind of life do you want? A beautiful life? The beauty of a generous life? What kind of person do you want to be? Do you want to be like Abraham or like Lot? Let's have a look at him. Secondly, the bondage of a self-centered life. We pick up the story in verse 10. Again, Lot lifts up his eyes. He sees the Jordan Valley and his heart is completely captivated by what he sees before him because he thinks it will make him rich beyond his wildest dreams, so he thinks. But Lot has too much concern for his material life and this makes him greedy and self-centered. Look at verse 11. Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. He chose for himself the whole plain. You know, Lot could have deferred to his uncle. He could have asked to come to an arrangement. They could have shared the fertile land, but he grabs the offer with both hands. He will take all he can get with no thought for Abraham. He's like a kid at a birthday party. There's a bowl with 20 chicken nuggets in it. He wolfs 15 chicken nuggets and sits there looking bloated. I know that kid. Too much concern for material things. And it often goes hand in hand with another problem. Insufficient concern for his spiritual life. Insufficient concern for his spiritual life. Lost didn't, wasn't really thinking about his spiritual life. How do we know that? Look at verse 10b. He sees the land, but what does it say in brackets? This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, right, okay. That's quite a red flag, isn't it? Why is God going to destroy these two cities? Because of verse 13. The people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Those people were notorious for their wickedness and their evil. Now, the word Sodom has unfortunate connotations in the English language. Uh, homosexual practice was even named sodomy in British English, and I believe it's a mistake. Because in the literature we have from the ancient world, all the literature in the ancient world, whenever they talk about Sodom, they don't talk about homosexual conduct. They don't talk about sexual sins. They talk about money. One of the, the, the clearest examples of this is from the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16, verse 49 and 50. I'll read it. You don't have to look it up. Ezekiel 16. The prophet says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. But they did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty 
and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. The most conspicuous sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were to do with their wealth and the abuse of their wealth, their excess of food, their pride, and their prosperous ease, and the fact that they neglected the poor and needy, a grave sin in the Bible. The abuse of wealth, the rich person who steps over the homeless person outside the shop and treats them as if they don't exist. The pride of life. Now, we know that's ugly, don't we? There is nothing more ugly than a greedy, self-centered person grabbing all they can and neglecting the needs of the poor. It disgusts us whenever we see it. Now, why did I say here that Lot's life was bondage? Was he really enslaved? Was it really that bad? Didn't he get the good land? The answer actually is in the next chapters of Genesis. Because first of all, Lot got robbed and captured by some kings who absolutely took him to the cleaners. Abram had to go in and rescue him. And later on, Lot moved in bit by bit to the wicked city. And when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot lost the lot. He lost everything. In the New Testament, the apostle Peter, Second Peter, says that Lot lived there in misery because of the godless evil lifestyle. But it was his choice. He moved to the land and then into the city. For all its wealth and pomp, Lot was miserable there. It was a wicked place. So what kind of life would you like? The beauty of a generous life? Or like Lot, the bondage and slavery of a self-centered life? I guess most of us, of course, will say we want to be like Abraham. We want to be generous. We want to be beautiful. But we have a problem. We're not really free to be generous. We're not truly free to be generous because of status, security, or selectivity. Status. You, you say you can't be more generous because you don't have enough for yourself. But why don't you have enough? Because you need more money to obtain a certain status in society. You may be, may be a person who's aspiring to a certain kind of identity. You know which clothes which accessories, which car, which lifestyle, which gym membership you need in order to project the image that you've chosen. That's the identity, that's the me I want to be. But the trouble is those things cost a lot of money, always a bit more than we seem to have. So you end up being generous to yourself, but don't have enough for others. You need that car, that home, that laptop, that handbag. Now, this may be a really cool kind of identity, or it may be the middle-class identity, aspiring to green wellies, a Range Rover, and a golden retriever. It may be some other kind of identity, but whatever it is, this status identity controls your heart and therefore controls your wallet and stops you being generous. Now, for other people, the issue isn't really about status. You don't really compare yourself with people living in Bowdoin. But for you, the issue is more about security. You need money to feel secure. You can't be generous because you're controlled by security. If you were really generous, then you worry you wouldn't have enough savings. And then what might happen if you didn't have enough savings? You'd lose your sense of security, and that's what you yearn for. Now, it's not just about money. Some people fear being generous with their time. Their diary's got a lot of walls around it. If I give a lot of my time to other people, I won't have enough me time. And then who knows what might happen if I don't have enough me time. I might get tired 
I might get stressed. I might even have a breakdown. Some people fear sharing themselves. If I let other people in, they might hurt me. If I give myself to other people, I make myself vulnerable. What might happen? I might get hurt. I, might, I would lose my security. I wouldn't be safe anymore. So you hide behind a wall of privacy and you have perimeter guards patrolling your life. You will only give yourself to a select small group of people. You are stingy with yourself. You won't give yourself to others because you might get hurt. That's status and security. The third thing that comes out of this actually is selectivity. Now, some people are very generous with their money, with their time, with themselves, but they're actually stingy because they're so selective. I remember a friend of mine who was very generous to his family. One time I was sitting in his house and he pointed out the window and he said, Mike, I will do anything for my family and my children, but everyone else out there can go to hell. This is a person who's generous within limits. But otherwise, most people in the world don't deserve it. So you, won't, you can't be generous to the poor because they haven't earned it. You can't be generous to a refugee and asylum seeker. You can't be generous to a migrant, to an addict, to that other person who isn't like you. Why are we not free to be truly generous, friends? Because we crave status, security and selectivity so we're not free to live that generous life we're not free to live like Abraham did we live like Lot now I started out today saying that this chapter teaches that the gospel makes you generous how does that work well how did it work for Abraham he believed God's promise to him and he acted on it and he trusted that God would take care of it God had promised him that he would have a great name that he would have a great future, that he would have the blessing of God, that he would have many descendants, that God would protect him and look after him. He believed all of that, and God promised that he would give him a land to live in. At this moment, he had almost none of it. He's living on a promise. So we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that Abraham was just this kind of big-hearted, generous character. He started out just as self-serving as the rest of us. The generosity came from belief in God's promise. By chapter 13, he has so much confidence in God that he's able to give away his future to Lot. And we don't know how it felt. This guy wasn't a superhuman. In verse 12, he goes to the land of Canaan where the, the, the land wasn't so good and life could be hard and the, the enemies were there. Verse 12, he goes and pitches his tents. There he lives there. Now, the glorious thing is that just at this moment, God actually showed up in his life and repeated the promise. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. This is the biggest promise he's had yet. And by the way, he's, he's already an old man and has no children. God's promising the whole land, not just some pasture, north, south, east, west. Go and walk through it. It's yours. It will be yours. This is what it's like in the life of faith. 
You take God at his word and follow him. You count the cost, you make the sacrifice. And afterwards, you don't feel great about it. <laughs> you don't feel victorious. You feel like maybe you made a mistake. You're still struggling with doubts and worries. Where's God now? I just did this big thing. And then God takes a moment like that to come and reassure you, to confirm his love and commitment to you. Verse 17 is absolutely glorious. Go and walk through the land. Go and see. The beauty of a generous life. The bondage of a self-centered life. That was Abraham and Lot. What about us? The question is, what are we basing our lives on? What are we basing our lives on? If we're basing our life on a certain status, on feeling secure, if these are the big things, then we're ultimately very insecure and fragile. Life might work for a while, but we're exposed and we're easily threatened. So what can you base your life on? Abraham lived by faith in the promise of God. Hebrews 11 says this, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Later it says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That is the secret of living this beautiful, generous life. It is that your life is built on the promise of God, not on the present here and now and what you can obtain in this life. Your life is built on the promise and on a glorious future that he has secured. And so we have something, if you're a Christian here, we have something far greater than Father Abraham had. God had planned something better for us because we know Jesus, the author of salvation, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. We know his life, his wonderful life. We know his miracles, his power. We've heard his teaching. We've seen his death on a cross. We've witnessed his resurrection from the tomb. We've seen his ascension to the right hand of God. And so if you are a Christian today, you have a brand new identity, which is that you are in Christ, safe. You're in Christ. Christian is a noble name. You have a new status. You're a son or daughter of the King of Kings. You have a new security. Romans 8 says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And you have no need to be selective in your generosity. You are free to be open-handed. Abraham looked at Lot and offered him the land. The land looked like paradise, but it turned out it wasn't. 
Jesus on the cross looked at a dying thief who turned to him and asked for mercy. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus promised him paradise and it was guaranteed because Jesus' death paid the entrance price. Now thieves shouldn't go to paradise. They would ruin it with their greed and self-centeredness. They would nick all the stuff and go and sell it down the market. They don't deserve to go. They will spoil it. They should be kept out. But Jesus says to this thief, I'll pay for you. I'll make you worthy with my blood. You and me, friends, we're just like that thief. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. And as a result of that cross, we are promised a future far greater than Abraham's wildest dreams. A guaranteed future. A sure hope of eternal life in the world to come. And when you know that, then you are set free to live this beautiful, generous life. The gospel makes us generous, frees us from self-centeredness, because we look at Jesus Christ who gave everything for us, and we're given all the status and security that we need. Let's pray.